and welcome back to the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. This is our final episode of 2023. I'm Molly Simpson, one of the staff writers here at the Mill, and today I'm joined by my colleagues Jack Tilhanty and Yoshi Herman. Welcome back both. Hi, it's just me speaking because we've only got two microphones. We do. Jack's sort of sitting opposite us. He'll Please be... subscribe to the Mill so we can buy more microphones. Yeah, exactly. Three more subs and we'll buy another one. Uh, Jack will join us in a bit. Yeah, so today we'll be talking about our favourite or I guess most memorable stories of 2023. Um, but first, we're going to thank this week's sponsor of the episode, the Halle, uh, Yoshi. Yeah, the Halle have sponsored this. They're sponsoring a few of our newsletters in mm-hmm. the next few months. I've been going to the Halle since I moved to Manchester. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a bit of a kind of, I'm not saying it's a sort of unrecognised cultural gem, because obviously people who go to the Halle love it, and it's like a huge institution in Manchester. But I think there are a lot of people in Manchester who don't realise that we have one of the best orchestras in the world, you know, we have this unbelievable symphony orchestra. Like, I reckon a lot of regular Mancunians who don't care about football still know about Man City, right? Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of Mancunians who aren't that into classical music don't actually know that we have this unbelievable Man City-level orchestra. So the Halle has been described as one of the best orchestras in the world by the Times, by lots of people. It's an incredible orchestra. They've been entertaining audiences for, I think it's like 165 years now. Um, it's an incredible institution. And the reason they're sponsoring this edition and they're sponsoring the mill at the moment is they are promoting concerts that they've got going on in early February. Steve Reich, who's a sort of living legend of contemporary classical music, very different sound to like a kind of like classical, you know, Beethoven or Mozart type composer. They've got world-class artists taking part. And there's a guy who's described as one of the world's most daring percussionists, which sounds excellent. He's called Colin Curry. Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood. And Reich himself has said the festival promises to be a magnetically attractive event. Uh, So we'll put the um, booking link, I guess, in the um, show notes so people can book. Sounds amazing. And thank you so much to the Halle for sponsoring. Thank you. So onwards with today's episode, there are so many mill stories that we've all loved this year from, I think, smaller feel-good features to more like big sweeping investigative projects which have given us all a bit of a headache sometimes and and taken a couple of months but we thought we'd select a few of our favorites and take you a bit behind the scenes of um what we enjoyed about putting them together so yoshi why don't you walk me through what have been some of your favorite stories from this year yeah it was nice looking through the list i just spent 20 minutes just now looking through And I think, like, especially at this time of year when we're so busy and we've got so many things on, like, you don't think of, like, the long view a lot. You don't, like, review everything you've done. But it's Mm. filled me with a lot of pride, actually, and happiness to see, to just to look back. So I've listed down, like, 50, I know know we're going to focus on a few, but I've listed (laughs) down, like, 15 stories or something that I think are really memorable. So your Freight Island one that you guys did together inside Manchester's latest hospitality meltdown. <laughs> loads of new people joined as members after reading that because it was a, just a great insight into this model that had had loads of publicity, but then it also had these problems. That was a great story. Daniel Tim's essay, The Billion Pound Manchester Question, mm. Who Has Benefited from the City's Breakneck Growth? That was like a really interesting attempt to answer some of the big sort of economic questions about the city. I thought that was a, a fantastic read and it provoked a lot of debate and we're going to hopefully have a, like a, a real live debate about that sort of question with different people taking part next year. Mm. I thought there was a great piece by Sean Fielding, former leader of Oldham Council. Oh. Why is your cash-strapped local council buying your failing local shopping centre? Good headline. That's great. Basically, why are councils getting so involved in the high street? Like He tried to explain that. What's the thinking? Because he, as council leader, had got involved in buying um, Mm. a shopping centre. I really liked Sophie's essay about 
what used to be called Factory, then was called Factory International, now it's called Aviva Studios, presented by Factory International, whatever. The venue is called Aviva Studios. And Sophie wrote this really great essay, like, what is Manchester International Festival, which is now headquartered at Aviva Studios? What is it actually all about? Why hasn't it grabbed her? Like, she's a very sort of arts person. Mm. Why hasn't it grabbed her, even though she's from Manchester? And what is this £210 million venue even, like, for? I thought that was a great piece and it really got people talking obviously i loved your chanel party thing which there was a recent <laughs> podcast episode about if you haven't listened to that go back i really liked the musu investigation that you i mean you two have combined on three or four hospitality stories this year mm. one of the reasons i think they're good is because hospitality gets so much hype so much positive publicity so many press releases and i think what you guys have managed to do is show that there are some businesses in that industry that really don't treat their workers very well paying late not paying at all putting people into real financial misery and that was a real collaboration from memory that was a collaboration between you two it was i think it's a real theme that we've been quite strong on this year like sort of raising questions that i think manchester has a bit of a duty to answer like there's a lot of hype about these restaurants and institutions but how are people actually being treated? What's it actually like inside? Yeah. Why hasn't this scrutiny been happening? And I'm, I'm really glad that we've started sort of taking that approach. Yeah, definitely. And the nice thing for you too is that you are roughly of the age that a lot of these workers are. So there are workers mm. in their 20s. Mm. And I think that means you can get good sources and be well connected in that world mm. in a way that, you know, if you're in your 40s or whatever, it would be different. So nice to use kind of that network of people who are roughly your age to like foreground some really impressive stories. I liked Afira's piece, The Sink the Pink, the whistling down our most underrated tram line. That was oh, a really lovely weekend read. Afira's a beautiful writer. Yeah, that was really, great. Really was strong. that her first one for us? It was definitely one of her first. Maybe. I really loved Jack's Aki Khan piece, The Butcher of Moss Side. Mm. Really nice community piece about a guy and, and why people love him. I, I enjoyed writing about Paul Dennett and the Salford Mayor mm. went along with Jack to that one. And I, one of the stories that really sticks out to me, and we're doing more on this theme this week, is the powerlessness of Michaela Alley was the headline. And it was about Michaela, her terrible conditions in her flat, the fact that this pregnant woman had been living in hotel accommodation because her flat was in such appalling condition. Mm. And her mum actually came into the office to tell us about the story. So that one really sticks out in my head. The Manchester Airport one about the secret flights with animal for animal testing, that really sticks out to me. And, and I think one of my favourites of the year was the social experiment, we called it, Our Student Life in the Pandemic. There were three mm. student writers, Ella, Maisie, and Libby. And Libby. Incredible Such, you know, all great journalists, such an interesting insight into like what it was really like to be a student. Occasionally we'll publish something where I think like, I can't imagine anyone else publishing that. I can't yeah. imagine it in the nationals, can't imagine it in the local media. I think that's perfect. Mm. So that was a really a bit great piece. I liked Daniel's piece about the, the Manchester rain, <laughs> the myth and meteorology <laughs> of Manchester rain. Your stuff on the Oldham Coliseum, I mean, how long ago was that? Yeah. It was like six months ago or something. I think so. Basically, what really was going on in the Oldham Coliseum, you got behind all the Arts Council stuff, you were there on the final night, which was really um, moving. And then how could I not mention Jack's speed dating piece? Was that this year? It was Valentine's Day. Yeah, so good. That was such a funny piece. Great observational writing. Not everything has to be a big investigation. Um, <laughs> something I'm trying to learn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was a really, very, very funny and very light. And I think, I don't know, I kind of feel like we want a bit more of that. Sort of, <laughs> that sort of vibe. So guys, that's my long list. Do you want my short list? I do. Give me your top three. I'm going to start with a story that very much brings my mind back to us in this office actually in this room after work and we are on the phone oh, to okay. a source yeah and she's just kind of 
misleading us. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of misremembering things a lot. And this was the Northern Fashion Week story. The story of how this bold idea to create a big Northern fashion show in Manchester went south with people alleging that they hadn't been paid, with proper dysfunction, with lots of crosswords. There was that evening when we were editing it. And basically we were trying to work out is this woman who ran the fashion show, is she telling us the truth? Do you remember Do you remember this? I do, yeah. I mean, reporting this piece to me is just defined by, like, really high drama. It was almost like being in the story itself, like being one of the sources. Yeah. Like, talking about the mayhem that went into creating Northern Fashion Week. I just remember us, like, running around the office with, like, phones pressed to our ear, just sources calling and calling us. Yeah. And could just almost feel like this realisation happening in the room, like, oh, my God, this is going to be an exciting story. Yeah, yeah. So, so... so I'm just going to read a bit from the story because it narrates that that scene in the office. So on Wednesday evening, this is you writing, on Wednesday evening, when I was going through this story with the Mills editor, we spoke to O'Donnell, what was her, what was her full Siobhan. Siobhan O'Donnell, on the phone. We asked her about Laurie's claim. Now, Laurie was a young worker who had previously worked for, for Northern Fashion Week. Mm-hmm. Laurie's claim that she hadn't been paid fully for her work. O'Donnell showed us screenshots from bank statements that demonstrated that Laurie received £800 a month, which she said was the agreed remuneration for working two days a week as a freelancer. We checked repeatedly, and O'Donnell was very clear. Until late August, Laurie had never worked full-time and never had a contract. Quote, so basically we don't owe her, O'Donnell told us, we don't owe her £2,300. On the laptop in front of us was a contract for employment between Siobhan, Claire, O'Donnell and Laurie. Laurie had just sent it to us as part of our fact-checking process. And in three places on the contract, it was dated 23rd of June 2023, with a salary of 25 grand for full-time work, 35 hours a week. On that salary, Laurie would have been due around £1,700 a month after tax, meaning her payments of £800 were less than half of what she was owed. Quote, absolutely not, O'Donnell says. That's edited. Do you know what that means? That's fraud. So at this point, she was kind of accusing this young woman of making something up. Like inventing it. Inventing it. So carry on with the story. Minutes later, O'Donnell had told us that no contract existed. Now, she says, there was a contract, but not this one that we're looking at. We asked to see the real one, and she seems evasive. After 10 minutes of back and forth, it lands in our inbox. It's the same document, the same date, the same salary, the same offer. I remember that so clearly. It was so bizarre because it was like, have we just been tricked by a source? Like, has someone just gone yeah. through the effort of creating a fake contract? Like, I couldn't quite believe it. Mm. And she was so adamant, this woman, mm. so adamant that she didn't owe this woman, this this worker money, that there was never a contract. She never worked full time. Mm. And you, I was on the phone to her and you literally brought over the laptop and showed me the document in real time yeah. so I could kind of ask the uh, the question it was just such a weird thing it's so rare that you get someone with something that's that clear cut it's like someone says something and then here's like a document that proves otherwise we catch them in a lie yeah it was it's... it was a really bizarre story but i think one of the most like interesting stories and like just to zoom out a bit it's a kind of a story about like someone who i think probably bit off more than they could chew i think so like someone who had really wanted to do something cool but they didn't have the resources they didn't have the backing they didn't have the know-how and they ended up pissing a lot of people off yeah in a way i felt quite bad for siobhan and i think like as a young journalist someone who's not yet maybe as hardened by the job as others like Mm. i 
I was probably more sympathetic to her. And, you know, it's a strange thing to be writing something about someone that casts them in a bit of a negative light when they ostensibly are sort of trying to do a good thing. And I guess you just have to remind yourself, you know, I'm my duties to the reader yeah, here. I've got to tell them what I think is going on. Great. So what else is on your shortlist? Tell me more. Okay, second one on the shortlist, because you asked me to pick one of mine as well. Mm-hmm. It was a New Islington story, a story about New Islington mm-hmm. and Coates. Really a story about two very different communities living alongside each other. So people who live behind New Islington, mm. and many of whom used to live on the Cardroom Estate, which is where what New Islington is based on now, mm. that, that land. And I think a sense of frustration among some of the old school Ancoats residents that there is this whole new world right on their doorstep and they can't quite relate to it. Sometimes mm. it's not even frustration. I think it's like bafflement. It's just like, who are these new people? And like, how, how are they so different to us? You know? Yeah. So I had spoken to people for about a year and a half about this story. Obviously, like, just occasionally on a weekend, I'll chat to someone or whatever. And I had always found that divide. Like, if you go from pollen... And you go, old. it's Old Mill Street, isn't yeah, it? You go down there. There is kind of a qu- pretty sharp divide. Mm. You can either go round to kind of the other bit of New England to take, take a left, or you carry on down, down towards Brunswick Mill. And if you carry on down that road, the world just changes so much. It's just like old school Manchester versus like this very new vision. And I thought that was such an interesting thing to write about because it's not really about gentrification as like a displacement of people. It's a kind of discomfort about gentrification where are the hard lines that get created between communities and maybe a lack of effort to like on the part of the local authority or the people mm. who are doing the building to make those lines a little bit less hard. So there's a piece at the end, the, the reading I'm going to do from this one is right from the end. So I've been chatting to a kind of urban designer called a guy called um, Stockley. I think he's called Martin Stockley. And then so, I, so to quote the piece, Stockley mentions something I've heard from Griffin, that's Phil Griffin, uh, architecture writer, and several others who were involved in building New Islington, that the architects making the master plan badly wanted to link the Ashton and Rochdale canals that run both sides of the marina, a massive undertaking. There was no practical point in it. The two already meet at Piccadilly Basin. But the designers felt it would give the scheme a sense of connection. To the great disappointment of the design team, the linkage didn't happen. The lock proved too expensive, and yet they still went to the effort of creating a basin deep enough so that it could be done in future. For some reason, this little story about architectural ambition and failure strikes me as being very funny. The men who designed Manchester's most successful new neighbourhood were so focused on creating, quote, a sense of connection by drilling into the earth to link two dirty industrial waterways. And they forgot about the important bit, the things that create real connection human connection as a vignette about the blind spots of the new manchester you could hardly improve on that that's a fantastic detail (laughs) it was a great detail and i didn't have that detail at the end of my piece and sophie wasn't happy with the way i'd ended the piece originally she thought it was weak and she was like what else have you got on that i thought actually this is the way to end the piece which is where great editing comes in actually because you just prompted to like go back to your material and be like oh maybe there's something better and actually that captured the piece better than any other anecdote i had yeah, it really draws into the motivations that the architects had to create this like ideal community, but they really missed the critical point, which is yeah, like, I, cohesion, which is, you know, resolving I, I, these class resentments that can emerge when you build luxury apartments in a neighbourhood that's predominantly working class. Yeah, and just like the kind of hubris of it, like we want to link these two canals. Like you can just see how focused they were on like the physicality of it. I don't think they didn't care about the community because you see all these meetings on YouTube where they met the people from the card room estate but i don't think they gave that much thought to like 
community integration, mm. which I think Manchester should spend a lot more time focusing on. And what's your third and final best story of 2023, Yoshi? My third and final one is by Jack, and it's the Sasha Lord profile. Um, two-part Sasha Lord profile. I'll mention it for two reasons. One, it was a nightmare to edit because Jack went on holiday on the day he filed it, and I think it was eight and a half thousand words. So I had to work on it all Friday, and then I split it into two. So that I think it was like a four thousand word version and a three thousand word version mm. or something like that. And it did so well this piece, which wasn't surprising because Jack had spoken to loads of people, very skillfully put it together. There were lots of interesting ideas in here. The edit wasn't fun, because as you guys know, when you're not here and I'm trying to edit your stuff, it's, it's tricky. The second reason I mention it is because I think it's an example of something I want to do more of, which is journalism that identifies where power lies in the city and tries to understand the power. So you get that a lot in American magazine journalism, like the state attorney general. Who are they? How did they win election? What compromises did they have to make to win election? What? How does that impact on the work that they do. I think that American journalism is really good at that, or like a Vanity Fair profile about someone who's at the top of the film industry. How did they get there? Why are they in that position and not millions of other people? And I think that's what Jack achieved with this Sasha Lord thing. Why was he successful? Well, the, the thesis of the piece is that he was successful because actually he wasn't a big caner. Like he, he was a club king who doesn't really like clubbing. A guy who makes millions from dance music events who doesn't really like dance music like yeah. he wasn't at the party at 5 a.m he wasn't doing the lines of gear off the loo or whatever because he's not interested in that yeah. he's an operator like he's a businessman he's like a very very measured very he's very sort of controlled like i did one of the first interviews with jack so i think jack met him two or three times but i sat in on the first one and i could just get the sense of him as the the level of kind of control he has over his life over his thoughts over his business and all along the way in the story there are all these other people who could have been the sasha lord mm. they could have been the big nightlife guy they could have been the next tony wilson but they were too drunk or too indisciplined to do that mm. and he wasn't so there was a understanding you get about the guy from the piece that you just would never get from following him on social media which is obviously our job okay do you want another reading yeah tell me more. final reading of my time on this podcast <laughs> So I'm going to quote a bit of the piece. Jack is at, I think, Park Life with Sasha Lord. So Jack writes, For a long time, Lord has been fascinated by the power of a crowd. As a child, his father would take him to watch Manchester United at Old Trafford, where, looking out at the fans in the stands, he says he used to think, if everyone here gave me 10p, they wouldn't miss it. I think of that story while we're on stage at Park Life and mention it to him, pointing to the crowd. Quote, it's mad to think, I say, how you'd look out at Old Trafford when you were a kid and think about all of them people giving you 50p. Now, look, here, there are thousands of people giving you, what, £100 each? Lord replies. It was 10p, actually. But yeah, then he pauses and smiles. Quote, but at Old Trafford, I wouldn't have had any overheads. <laughs> like, it's so him. It's so captures. Yeah, you get a real sense of his character. From yeah, it's like he... he without the need for descriptive writing. He, yeah, he writing. didn't... Yeah, like, he didn't need to correct the, the 10p thing, the 50p thing. And he didn't need to mention the overheads. It's such a boring thing to mention, but, like, that's clearly the guy he is. Yeah. Like, there was another bit Pragmatic. where, like, Jack was going around part of life with him and he kind of, like, got off the buggy and, like, stopped someone from breaking. And it's just like, he's basically a very pragmatic guy. Mm, very he's serious. The, he's the opposite of Tony Wilson in that respect. Yeah. You know? 
And um, I thought the piece captured that, and it was a really amazing piece. Okay, those are my three favourite stories of the year, or at least like three of the highlights that I can remember from the year. Um, Molly, it's your turn. Give me your... Is it two or three you've got? I've got three. Okay, you've got got three. three. It's too hard to pick two. What is your number one? Okay, my number one, I went for, I think you mentioned this earlier, The Butcher of Moss Side by, yeah. by Jack Tohanty. This is such a transfixing story. There's one comment from a reader I'd really like to highlight just because I think it really captures what we're trying to do at the mill, which um, you mentioned earlier, Yoshi, like how the role of a newspaper should be sort of to entertain and enlighten mm. and shine a light on interesting people rather than, you know, really hard-nosed investigative writing. Yeah. Um, this is from mill member Anne McCulloch. Thank you for this. At a time when the news from any other media outlet makes me cry, you give me a story which also makes me cry, but because of its humanity rather than its absence. It's got a huge reaction. I'm just looking at it now on my laptop and I think it got something like 70 or 80 likes. And I think if I were to pin this down, I think it's it's probably for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, it's beautiful writing, but, but two, it tells a story about Moss Side a community that's often associated in the press with mm. crime and death and mayhem, but mm. creates a narrative that is positive and humane and and fascinating. And it really taps into this like civic pride that I think people have in Manchester, which maybe we don't do enough on. Like I think people are really proud to live here and that's a lovely resource to, to, to tap into. Yeah, I thought it was a really nice piece. Aki Khan. That's right. And I think we got it when we were out looking for a different piece. We were, we were trying to chase down a tip in the local area. Jack's, Jack's, uh, Jack's um, speaking, but he's not on the mic, so you'll only be able to hear him <laughs> sort of vaguely in the background. But yeah, no, we, I, we found this story looking for something else, and I agree, really lovely story. And I think the mill was known for this kind of thing, and maybe we, like, we should be doing a little bit more of it. But just these ones where you really meet someone and you understand who they are, you understand why a community really loves them. Excellent. Molly, what's your number two? Amazing work, Jack. Number two, Sophie's factory story. Again, talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think it's a fascinating piece that really goes inside the kind of cultural renaissance Manchester's having at the moment. Like, huge investment in the luxury scene, you know, like Chanel and Soho House, but also massive arts venues. We've got Eno coming soon. Mm. We had um, formerly Factory International, now Aviva Studios. And this really asks the question, which I think a lot of people aren't, which is, okay, but what actually are these cultural venues for? Like, who are they for? What do they do for us? And are they getting it right? Sophie mentioned to me quite a while ago, I think, that there's a lot of cultural boosterism in Manchester, which I think, Mm. you know, we talk about a lot, that um, there's maybe not enough scrutiny, and that she kind of sees her role to, I guess, just be a critical friend and ask some kind of harder questions about, like, okay, but what are we getting right about culture in Manchester and and what could be better? So I really liked this story. I don't know if you remember, Yoshi, Maya was interning at the time, Mm. and... I was a bit shy of uh, reporting stuff. So I think I just got back from Glastonbury Festival mm. and um, you, you were probably just being nice and slinging me an easy task. <laughs> I was tired. <laughs> and uh, you said, okay, go out into the street and see if you can ask, I don't know, what, what was it, like about 30 people if they've heard of um, Manchester International Festival. And me and Maya went out to Deansgate and the plan was to ask about 50 passes by two questions. Have they heard of Manchester International Festival? Yeah. To kind of... I guess very informally assess the impact yeah. that the Manchester International Festival has on Manchester. After a while, me and Maya, I have to admit, went a little bit rogue. We were kind of frustrated by how few people actually heard of it, so we started to ask people who looked like they they might. <laughs> <laughs> was it like people with weird glasses? Or that was yeah. architectural glass yeah. glasses frames. 
the results got a lot better after that as you as you can you can imagine sophie seemed to to realize this was an issue from her interviews with, with the people at factory you know that the message wasn't quite getting out that you know despite the fact that there's a, a lot of investment in this arts venue there there's still some barriers in the way to people accessing this kind of culture and that really raises the question like okay again who is this culture for yeah and, and i think like the standard critique of mif would be is it just a little bit too middle class? Is it a bit too avant-garde? Is it trying to impress people around the world rather than truly serving Manchester? I think that's a really difficult question, by the mm. way, because Manchester is so diverse now. It's got so many different types of people living here that, like, it must be really difficult to commission things. But I thought there was a really funny bit from that piece where she was talking to, is he called John McGrath? Yeah, but John McGrath, the guy who runs MIF, creative director and chief executive of Factory International. And he mentions that, you know, permission's been obtained to serve drinks until 3am and Sophie asks if that means Aviva Studios will host club nights and he says we don't want to be a nightclub not on a weekly basis but they do want to host great moments that are club based <laughs> so like one-off club nights maybe I think was, that was a kind of, kind of a funny <laughs> thing but like I guess we're now starting to learn what Factory is all about and, and maybe by the time the anniversary of this piece Sophie should go back to it and be like are they delivering on their promises and stuff I've seen lots of positive tweets and stuff about factory and and, and people saying oh, i love this i love this um, but i think time will tell whether that massive investment is, is paid off definitely definitely um, molly what is your number three number three um you did ask us to pick one of our own so i have gone for um breaking into the chanel after party nice victoria nice. baths such a fun commission yeah. um we weren't really sure whether we were going to do it I was spending a lot of time out in the pouring rain with a guy called Rodolfo, who's a celebrity spotter, trying to catch glimpses of people and hanging around the fringes of the event to try and spot something. Yeah. And nothing was working out. And we really wanted an insidery feel with the piece. You know, like, what is it like inside these these big events in Manchester? Like, who gets invited? Who doesn't get invited? What do people talk about? What do the like models being flown in from Paris make of the city? Like, yeah. was it freezing on the runway? Like, it was obviously. And I was very keen to try and break into the party. And then, luckily, I think you suggested it first, yeah. which made me feel markedly better about um, doing some slightly uh, under the boot journalism. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. The fact that you got in was excellent, and it gave us ways to cover that story that. You know, it's difficult when there's a massive event happening in Manchester. It's hard for us to cover because everyone's covering it. But it gave us such a good angle. And it was a very gonzo thing to get in. And even though it didn't look like a great party. But nevertheless, um, yeah, really, really good story. And one of the ones I was like, had on my list as well. It was a lot of fun. So much fun. Um, So I reckon Jack should probably take my place. Yeah, one Uh, in, one out policy. Okay, fine. So (laughs) listeners, thank you so much for listening this year and for reading the mail, and um, I will hear from you next year, and Jack is going to take my place. Great, Jack, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Great, great to have you back. Um, So tell me, what have been your favourite mail stories of 2023? I wanted to start, it's it's weird because so many, obviously, it's a cliche to say there's so many to choose one, but there really is so many to choose from. But one that stood out for me was your interview with Whitworth, was his name? Mark uh, uh, Whitworth. Mark Whitworth. Uh, he's the CEO of Peel Group, which, for those who don't know, that's like the massive property and land conglomerate that owns so much of Greater Manchester. They own like the Trafford Centre, Media City, big bits of um, Bolton, which I've written about before. And I guess from my perspective, what was so good about it was if you write about anything in Greater Manchester, you probably at some point had to write about Peel. And every time that I've written about them, I've found them to be like this kind of really blank-faced 
impenetrable entity that you can't really get a lot out of. You can maybe get like a press release or a little bit of a chat with someone. And they have this sort of reputation of a, just a big corporate machine that you don't really get a lot of like personability out of. Is that the mm. right word? Like you never really meet someone so. from there and get an insight into how it works. And then we got this tip about it having some struggles with restructuring and you basically hung around the car park until they let you in and that was like i am i am always uh, impressed by that <laughs> always rate it when someone does that so yeah it's I, I was sort of trying to win them over a bit i think with a bit of like nerve and a little bit of boldness i think that's a, a tip i got well not an in-person tip yoshi has met her but i haven't um tina brown the former vanity fair editor she mm. once said that just try and be really bold and that's also something a family friend said to me once um eric harwood he was a brilliant mirror journalist and documentary maker and um we coincidentally ran into each other in airport hotel i was on my way to france he was on his way back a few years ago and i was he sort of knew i was trying to get make my way into journalism he was like molly you've just got to have balls that was his advice Mm. and um i think that's that's what i was trying to show a little bit and yeah it was surprising and it wasn't surprising that they gave an interview i mean you know you're right it was one of the very few interviews that senior execs at appeal have ever given although mark whitworth himself did dispute that he <laughs> said in the interview i think he said no i often talk to big hitting magazines and papers actually mm. uh one of his many funny quotes it was also wasn't surprising so i think we gave them from a pr perspective a bit of an opportunity to lead the piece mm. um you know we sort of admitted that we we've heard from a, a a few people that has been, you know, a dozen layoffs and it was announced in this quite callous way, but we don't have that much material. We we really like to to, to talk to you guys and take people inside. So mm. yeah, it did, didn't surprise me hugely in the end that they, they, they did want to be part of it. And the suggestion that they were secretive and, you know, me being kicked out of their car park by security, the kind of impression that gave of a company that really didn't want any any scrutiny or any reporters looking at it I think that didn't sit well with them so it and it sort of encouraged them to open up a bit yeah and the PR angle is interesting that you bring up because in their um sort of setting so to speak is this big company that doesn't really have much of a public face it's interesting that once you got into the interview he became quite PR cautious like he was interested in looking good and I always imagine mm. Peel when I think about Peel, it's sort of because they're so often difficult to speak to, you get the impression that they don't, they're not really that bothered mm. about the public perception because as long as they're continuing in their dominant fashion, it doesn't really matter to them. And then mm. you offered the word extraordinary to describe what Peel have done in the last few years. And this was coming off the back. And in, in the piece, you write a lot about how it gets this reputation as being like hard-faced and uh, callous and unbothered and all this sort of thing. And then you do make the sort of concession. Obviously, they have done a lot of really good, big... This is the thing, it's never like... You, you don't often admire it's like social capital or something. It's always just like the pure enormity and power that they have is cool. Like, you, you have to kind of stand in admiration of that. And then you offer the word extraordinary to him, and then he's like, yeah, extraordinary, you said it, not me. And it was like this kind of exchange where it was like, wait, you're the CEO of this huge yeah. land company. You know, like, ha you said we were good, we got you. And he was just sort of like, what the hell, man, that's so funny. Like, that was a sort of revealing bit of the piece that I really liked. Yeah, that was... Um 
very refreshing for me because I think the expectation is often when you go to interview the CEO and, and chairman of a, a really big Manchester company, which I think is important to do it. Like Yoshi said earlier about Sasha Lord, it's really important to talk to like the city's leading business people and politicians. Like, okay, how do they get to their success? What's their secret? Mm. Who, how do they relate to other important people in the city? Like, who are they? But the risk is that these people are, you know, very media trained. They are skilled operators and maybe there's a, a slight like pragmatic seriousness about them that maybe doesn't lend itself to, to hugely interesting quotes or mm. or funny details um mark whitworth actually turned out to be the opposite said a lot of very interesting things like for example i think one of my, my favorite quotes which i'm just bringing up now is yeah media city your words not mine it's extraordinary but the reality is to those that it suits which is this big horrible powerful conglomerate that just builds things the nature of success it just means the larger you are the more people want to have a pop at you mm. just so interesting such a such a human quote and mm. so different to, to what i expected yeah, yeah glad you what you expected. the other ones so i think in general it's worth mentioning like daniel tim's becoming such a big presence this year like he wrote some stuff last year for sheffield and i think he did something for manchester as well last year at the back yeah. end of 2022 i can't remember though because obviously dan's like this incredible policy mind just has a real knack for like data and numbers and i think like especially for me and you who are often reporting from the kind of local level and speaking to people who are affected by these big sort of macro event things mm. like the ma- how Manchester's yeah. grown so much and gentrification and the way that that's changed the city and the way that that builds into politics and the way that the systems work and all that kind of thing. Like we're often writing about the results of those things mm. and the human impacts of those things, but mm. we've never really had the wherewithal or the aptitude to kind of look at the bigger question, really break it down and make sense of it. And Daniel starting this year has really given us that ability and I think that's made a huge difference to our coverage and one of my favourite ones this year was the story that was called The Billion Pound Question it was all about um, Manchester's breakneck growth and the sort of skyscrapers that are going up and the way that the city has changed over the past few years and Dan delved into the data spoke to people who are really experts in this sort of stuff and helped to answer a lot of the questions that I think people had and it was just really refreshing to read that sort of level of detail Mm. about a local thing i know it was still a big thing because it's manchester but it was like it's never really been delved into in that way like it probably has been in sort of policy think tank reports that the Mm. average member of the general public just doesn't read but for him to sort of um synthesize it into something that was really readable and so explicable and easy to understand it was just like it was like a godsend for me i still go back and read it now when i'm like trying to understand uh, an aspect of that so that's one that i would always recommend going about reading one of the most interesting bits about it is the way that he sort of turns these preconceived ideas about manchester's mm. growth on its head which is something that i just don't feel like people were doing before like when he was talking about the expulsion of local well local quote unquote in the city center but i suppose that's always kind of a byword for like you're talking about like working class people not being able to live in the city centre and then Dan looked at the data and that you find a lot of the people who are coming here to live here in the city centre now are people who work what the government might call like a low skilled job but it really just means you'd be you're either on or below the average wage like bartenders shop workers people who make up a really key part of our economy and also make up a key part of the city centre population Mm. but you never really think of them as city centre people Mm. you always mm. think of like Deansgate Square people who yeah. are like you know rich basically 
Yeah. And you have, you, you have that like stereotype in your head of like, oh, these are the people that are overrunning the city centre when it's not really true. And it was great to see Dan really crystallise that in a piece. Definitely. His writing is so crystal clear yeah. and so fascinating. And it's so rare, I think, for a journalist to take a really sweeping look at a, a big issue in the city and, and come away with a piece that feels so confident and assured mm. and and just... I think so so revealing about the state of the city. Yeah. And it's doubly when you see him do it, which I guess readers don't get the privilege of doing, but when you're in the office with him and you see him sort of break down these numbers and figure it out, pull together the sources to be able to write it and it's just kind of like, damn. Like it that one what is it, maybe like it could be about three thousand words, but the amount of work that goes into those three thousand words, like every paragraph is hard for you know what I mean mm. like he's really had to delve into something to get that information and then to understand it speak to someone else about it and then deliver it and it's just that one after the other so he's been like wall to wall killing it this year and I'm really happy that he's been able to write so many pieces for us this year it's yeah. been um it's like really upped it's like took us to another level I think shout out Daniel big time shout out Daniel Timms and then my last one will be about uh, to pick one of my own if I must is the uh, the chicken shop piece about oh my gosh like story. spicy sauces on chicken burgers in Manchester and we ha- how we've pioneered this mm. new kind of takeaway food which is like interesting in itself but it was better to get into it and meet the characters who were involved in it meet the people who really cared about it and and try and like delve into this world in and in and of itself of spicy chicken but manchester spicy chicken burger yeah this is such a great story i think it's a real testament to you and sophie's ability to create atmosphere in a piece and you successfully weaved in all these great details and little scoopy parts like how people are selling these spicy sauces for chicken burgers to each other for like six figures Mm. and they're poaching each other's staff and it's like this really ultra competitive market that can be incredibly lucrative but you fed that all into this story that just felt like so narrative driven and so beautifully written like it it was really impressive and I'm, I'm not surprised at all it's become one of our most popular stories of all time tell us how how you first came across this story do you remember when yeah so we were both out so we were doing a piece about saint patrick's day mm-hmm. and because we couldn't think of a way of doing saint patrick's day that was like probably original <laughs> <laughs> and better we just decided we'd go out for the day on saint patrick's day and just write about the people that we came across um, in pubs, we in should pubs, say. we should make that clear. And then in one of the pubs in the ba- in the beer garden of this place called the Union in Levenshume, we met. We didn't really meet them. They just started talking about chicken burgers. It was kind of like talking about where you were going to go after the mm. pub, and they were all mm. arguing about where's best. And then they ended up into this really like deep conversation about who's got the spiciest one, who's got the best chicken, all this sort of stuff. And That's I was like, this money. is very, you get into the minutiae here mm. about what is basically just the thing that you probably won't even remember eating at the end of the night. Mm. And then one of the guys who was there called Joe McGrath, who's a food writer and who became a sort of key part of that St. Patrick's Day piece. He was like, no, you don't get it. Like, this is serious stuff. Like, people really care about this. It's mm. like their allegiance, you have allegiances to these different places. There's queues around the block in some of them. And it was just like this much richer story than we'd probably realised originally. Mm. And it was funny because I pitched it as a kind of like, oh, this would be like a funny little thing to do on like a Tuesday newsletter just for members or something. Mm. And then when you start to look into it, it was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. And then you meet more people who are involved with it who do YouTube videos just about this stuff. And it was like, wow, people are really invested. And I think 
those are the stories. It doesn't really matter what the topic is a lot of the time, as long as you can find a person who's really passionate about it mm. and you can prove that it's just something that people really give a shit about. Yeah. It's like that in itself inspires interest in a reader. Mm. He's just like, well, if these people are obsessed with it, like I should know a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, and that was one of those cases with this one. And it's funny because if you read the comments on that piece, <laughs> like some people completely get with it and they're like, yeah, I'm so glad that you did a story about this. Like, so interesting. And then you'll scroll like a few comments down or you'll look on Twitter and some people are like, why on earth are you writing about this? It's just, <laughs> like, this seems ridiculous. Like, is this, <laughs> is this the level to which the mill is stooped? <laughs> We're going to just start writing about uh, who likes a certain chicken burger. So I like stories that do that as well like ones where some people just think this is such valid important stuff and it's such a reflection of the city and then someone in the same comment section could be like this is complete nonsense and you are wasting our time <laughs> like those are basically the stories that we should all strive to write the those ones are that split pieces. opinions like that that's always really satisfying yeah the reach it got was incredible sorry to use the word reach and um <laughs> it's um I remember so many friends coming up to me, friends who live in Willington, saying, like, we're going to Miami Crispy tonight just to try mm. the burgers. We're so, like, inspired by Jack and Sophie's, like, the, the way they, they made us feel like they were part of this world and the hype around it we just want to see for ourselves. Like, I even went on a, a first date with a guy and he was telling me about this article he'd read about the best spicy chicken burger, not just in Manchester, but in the UK. And I was like, oh, yeah, my, my mate, my colleague wrote that. And he was like, no, no, so what it is. <laughs> oh, my God. I've been hearing about this for the last week and a half. Like, so yeah, incredible, incredible story. And I think like Yoshi said earlier, it was a, really an example of the kind of journalism that, that you wouldn't read elsewhere. And I, I think mm. it showed why, why the mill is special. So that is our 2023. Those are our most memorable, our, our most favorite stories. Top ones. I hope you've enjoyed reading us this year. We've certainly had a lot of fun writing and recording all our podcast episodes for you. That is it from us for this year. We'll be back in 2024. New podcast episodes, new stories, and plenty more live events as well. So please do head to manchestermill.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get all of our pieces in your inbox. And as ever, if you have any tips for what we should be covering in 2024, just email us on editor at manchestermill.co.uk. But for now, thank you so much for being part of The Mill this year. Um, we've so loved bring you on this journey with us and have a lovely christmas and new year thank you bye 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 bye